what we do, I hope, in life with humility, recognizing that we're trying our best to make sense out of uh, the world and the way we see it, the way it's been revealed to us, and what uh, our brains can best put together as a semblance of reality. And that's what I've tried to do in this series, Why I'm Not. I've had a number of people who've said to me, well, why are you a Christian? Is it because you grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents? My answer to that would be, that's probably why I started that way. But I think all of us go through that stage of life where we hit some measure of, of questioning and, and if not outright rebellion, at least a, a desire to become who we are independently of where we came from. And I was no different. And so I've been through a stages, multiple stages in life where I've questioned, why do I believe this over that? Maybe I'm wrong about this, and maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe I need to change where I am. Every time I've tried to do that, I've come back to the truth of Christianity as I understand it. Now, some of my understanding of Christianity is altered. But I still return to it as the explanation that makes the most sense of not just who I am, but who others are in this world and why this world is the way it is. It makes sense not only to me for behavior, but it makes sense to me for ideology. Christianity makes sense to me of these other religious beliefs in the sense that I can understand why people get there, but I can also understand why it's only a snapshot of the truth. Now, when C.S. Lewis was contemplating a move to from atheism to the belief that there is a God. He was an Oxford Don at the time, and one of his uh, uh, friends that he would constantly go back and forth with was J.R.R. Tolkien, who also was at Oxford, wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. And once C.S. Lewis reached a point where he decided, okay, there must be a, some type of a God, he was not a Christian. He was simply what we would call a theist because he believed that there's a God. And he was engaged in dialogue with Tolkien. And Lewis said to Tolkien, I can't go there to Christianity because Christianity is too pompous. Christians believe that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And that's not reasonable to me. Tolkien's reply was, no. Christians believe that God's truth is out there and that all of these different religious systems in an effort to understand God have some element of His truth. It's what makes them open to understanding the fuller picture 
that is explained within Christianity. So Christians believe that other religious systems have some elements of truth within them. They just don't have the fuller truth. The arrogant one that believes they're right and everyone else is wrong is the atheist. Because the atheist is convinced there is no God and all the Christians got it wrong and all the Jews got it wrong and all the Muslims got it wrong and all the Hindus got it wrong and all of the other belief systems got it wrong. It was a short time till Lewis became a Christian. So in the process of dealing with this, why I'm not, we've gotten to the final segment, my third segment on why I'm not a Jew. And I need to be a little more precise with my language should have been before. Because a Jew can mean different things. And what I should have said is why I'm not Jewish or am I? Because definitions are important. Now this was the slide I've given you. A Jew can be a citizen of Israel. I cannot. Doesn't matter if I was born in Israel. I can't be a citizen if I'm not Jewish. A Jew, so in that sense, I'm not a Jew. A cultural Jew, I guess I could practice Judaism and claim status as a cultural Jew, but I don't. I don't keep kosher. I'm not good with the Jewish holidays. Uh, I'm not a cultural Jew. Now, a genetic Jew, I'm certainly not either. And to an extent, that word Jew may refer to someone who's either a citizen or a genetic, but it can also mean someone who's cultural. Jewishness, perhaps, is a better thing. Am I Jewish in religion? Or a religious Jew, as I've called it. Well, again, that's not an easy question to answer. I've put up this graph before, that there are so many different types of practicing Jews. Some who are orthodox, some who are conservative, some who are reform, some who are messianic. So you've got a number of different types of Judaism. We went through at the end of the first section and into the second section of my uh, speaking on this, the Jewish medieval scholar, Rabbi Moses ben Min Maibon, uh, Maimonides is what he's commonly called. He set out 13 principles of Judaism. I went through those with you. If you were here in the class, if not, you can get these lectures off the internet. You can get them as a podcast or you can read them. Uh, the lessons are in written form and they're fuller in the written form than what I can present orally. So I went through the 13 principles of Judaism And while some of them required a little bit different understanding, I agreed with all 13 of them. The main one that we have to put an asterisk on is the understanding or principle of Jewish expectation of the Messiah. Because I believe Judaism properly expected a Messiah, I just think he came. And so, 
if we look at Judaism not from a current perspective, not from a medieval perspective, but we go all the way back to the first century, we see that there were different groups then of different belief systems in Judaism as well. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, and you had the Nazarenes. The Nazarenes were those who believed that Jesus from Nazareth was, in fact, Messiah. And there was a substantial number of first century Jews that believed that. And so within the framework of that, I want to talk to you this morning, and I was trying to think of an analogy to introduce this new material. And the new material analogy that I came up with is my smartphone GPS system. If I were to take my iPhone, which I left at home this morning, if I were to take my iPhone and pull up my GPS program, I typically use Waze, which ironically uh, was uh, uh, conceived of and invented in Israel. Um, If I were to take my Waze program and type in completed Judaism, I'm convinced the GPS should lead me to the cross. I'm convinced that Jesus on the cross, dead, dying, dead, buried, and resurrected again, is a completion of Judaism, not a new religion. Judaism has always been an expectant religion. Judaism has always looked forward to a Messiah. Judaism was never, here's the book, or here are the scrolls, here's your Tanakh, take it and go home, it's over, it's finished. No, Judaism, properly understood, has always, as Maimonides said, always, it's core to Judaism, that there's a Messiah coming. The book lays out problems. The book tells you God is the solution to the problems. But the book also tells you that God hadn't solved them all yet. The final answer to the questions that are probed in Scripture is out there in Judaism. It's always been expecting a Messiah. Look at Genesis Bareshit in the Hebrew, 12, verses 1 through 3. Hebrew uh, takes the title of each of the scrolls or books from the first word in them. So Bareshit is what we would call Genesis because the first word in Hebrew is Bareshit, in the beginning. Bareshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. Look at the, the 12th chapter. The Lord... And that is in all capitals because it's a reference to Hashem, to the name of God. The Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram at the time, he hasn't changed his name yet. Go from your country. Go from your kindred. Go from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you, those who dishonor you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it's this expectant religion. It's an expectant faith that somewhere, somehow, through the seed of Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. Someone is coming through Abraham's seed. This isn't new with Abraham. It goes back even further. But it's always been an expectant religion, expecting a Messiah. Christianity is believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me, let me write for you again. Let's, um, we've got Ellen down here. I'm sure we've got a few other English teachers out there. Uh, can I get the Elmo up, please? All right. So here we go. Let's get a little more light on it. Um, if I want to add to a word in English, and we're looking at the word Christianity, okay? Christianity. And let's break it down. Very basic. At the end, we have a suffix called iti. It is, uh, it actually kind of comes from the French, which comes from the Latin, um, ultimately. But what it means is we have a noun. And the noun is a condition or state of the root word. So, for example, if you want to talk about someone who has, is in the state of being civil, we can talk about civility, right? That's just something we add. That if, if, if we're seeing civility among the crowd, then we know that they're showing or exhibiting the condition or state of being civil. So that takes care of the iti part. But now we've still got Christian. So Christianity is the condition or state of being Christian. What is a Christian? Christian has at the ending I-A-N. That means engaged in the work or associated with something. Whatever the base noun is. So Christianity is the state of being a Christian. A Christian is someone who's associated with Christ. So that gets us to Christ. Christ is an English transliteration of the Greek word Christos. That is the letter CH in Greek. That is, looks like a P, but it's not. It's the letter R in Greek. It's a row, iota. That is a sigma or an S. And then this is just the Greek ending to this word. We put an English ending on it, and we have Christ. Christ has a meaning in Greek. The meaning in Greek of the word Christ is anointed. There is a Hebrew word for anointed. The Hebrew word is mashiach. 
which if we write it into English, ma, she, ach, or make it a little easier for us to say, ma, sai, ah. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is a proclamation that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So Christianity, when you trisect it into various parts, means a, a, a belief that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And I, being one of the Goy, am so tickled and thankful and appreciative that through one of Abraham's offspring, I and my family and my brothers and sisters at large have been blessed. So that's what we have. Now, here's the way Rabbi Paul put it. Rabbi Paul, who we'll study next, said in Romans chapter 11, think of it like a tree. Now, Rabbi Paul's having to deal with a church that's, that's got um, started by Jews. Gentiles have come into the church. The church has been uh, split apart by, by uh, uh, emperor. The emperor, the Roman emperor, had sent all the Jews out of Rome because they were fighting. Um, uh, actually, they were probably fighting over Jesus. Uh, it depends on how you understand a Roman text that says they were fighting over Christos. But that debate for another day. Regardless, the Jews go out, and then the Jews are welcomed back in. So now you've got the church that was started by Jews, run by Jews. The Jews are removed, and the Gentiles are on their own. And then the Jews come back in, and the church is trying to figure out how to reintegrate. And so Paul writes this letter to the church. We call it Romans. And in the process of the letter, Paul lays out some very fundamental things. One of the things Paul lays out is where Gentiles fit into this whole picture anyway. And he says, think of it as a tree. Now, the tree is Israel. More specifically, the oracles, the, 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 the scriptures of Israel. More specifically, the salvation history of Israel. More specifically, the calling of Israel. But Israel, in its Oracles and salvation history and calling, that's the tree. Those are the roots. And so if you were to look at the branches that Paul was in of Messianic Judaism, that's just the completion of the tree. That's the fruit. That's what the tree grows into in Paul's analogy. Paul says, you Gentiles, y'all are just a wild branch that got grafted into the tree. But the roots that nourish you are the roots of the tree. You're just, we, we, we're, 
I got grafted into the tree. Which explains why when you look at the roots of Judaism and you see the oracles and you see the calling of Israel and you see the salvation of history of it and you understand that and tear it apart, it's why as a Christian I'm saying, yeah, I agree with that, 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 asterisk. Jesus is Messiah. That's where we land. Now, Jesus himself, walking the earth, a carpenter by trade, as opposed to Paul, who was a trained lawyer and rabbi. Jesus, a carpenter, who comes into his ministry the last three years of his life. Three years of a Galilean carpenter. And Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. I'm the completion of the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets have been saying, someone's coming, someone's coming, someone's coming. I didn't come to abolish that. I came to be that, to fulfill them. And two weeks or three weeks, two weeks ago, I guess, three weeks ago, I looked at some of the prophecies that were messianic prophecies. But what I'd really like to do right now is zoom in on the law. The law, Hebrew Torah, the Torah, the law are considered the first five books of our Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're also called the five books of Moses. If you want to go Greek on us, we'll call them the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. So the law that Jesus is referencing here is not some legal code of Rome or Israel, in a sense, but it's actually those five books. Now, they contain Israel's legal code that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the dietary laws, the festivals and celebrations. Those are contained in the law, but that's not the law. The law is broader than that. The law includes the stories of Abraham, for example. It includes the stories of the Garden of Eden. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish that. I'm not here to start a new religion. I came to fulfill my religion, the faith of Israel. So I want to look at just a few that we've got some time for and see how Jesus fulfills. The sin of Adam and Eve with its curses and estrangement from God and life. Adam and Eve were created to be in fellowship with God. God walked with them. He talked with them until they sinned. And when they sinned, it's the tragedy that God had said. God said, the day you eat of the fruit, you'll die. Now remember, day doesn't mean 24 hours necessarily. It can. But day also means era or time period. They didn't die physically in that 24 hours. 
They started a death. <laughs> they were dead man walking, maybe, but uh, and woman, and they died spiritually in some ways. But don't get tied up in that. What happened to them was the relationship that they had with God was severed and estranged. And you see that God brings it to their attention by God walking through the garden saying, where are you? Now, this is not that God was bad at hide and seek. God knew where they were. This is God. But God's making a point. They're not there in fellowship with him. And the remarks of Adam and Eve is, uh, we were embarrassed because even though we've been with you ever since you made us, we realized we were naked. And God says, um, you've been eating of something that I told you not to? And God's first act of graciousness is making them covering. And there's already a prophetic line in there in the sense that our sin that separated us from God, that showed our nakedness, is something that God's going to have to cover up. God kicks them out of the garden, expels them from the garden. They no longer live in Eden. This is not utopia. This world is not perfect for us. But when God kicks them out, He puts a specific prophetic word out there for Eve. He says in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to put enmity between you. This is Satan, who was a serpent and a deceiver. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head. This is singular in the Hebrew, meaning one. It is masculine in the Hebrew, meaning male. A single male offspring of Eve will bruise or step on or trample upon the head of Satan. But not without pain. And not without incurring personally damage because Satan will bruise his heel. The offspring of woman, the single male offspring, will step on and conquer Satan, the deceiver, as the serpent... Why is it important that this is as the serpent? Because it's all that the serpent has done in the garden. The estrangement, estrangement of man and woman from God. That severance, the sin of the garden, the deception of the serpent, that and its consequences will be solved and conquered by a single male offspring of the woman who will in the process suffer himself. I mean, that's the prophetic word. That's what Rabbi Paul explains in Romans 5, we have through Jesus. So in this letter to the Roman church, Paul's writing. Paul says, I want to go to straight to verse 18. Therefore, 
as one trespass, this is Adam and Eve in the garden, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Justification is a legal word. It means you are justified or you're pronounced not guilty. So even though we are condemned, there was an act of righteousness by one who led to justification in life. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners because we're all born of Adam and Eve. We inherited their sin. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So as sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. So Jesus came to fulfill that part of the law. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Jesus, as fulfillment of the law, fulfilled the sin of Adam and Eve with the curses and the estrangement from God and from life. No longer are we dead in our sins. God said, the day you eat of it, you'll die. But through the offspring of woman came a single male who through his righteousness has redeemed us from that death and the curses. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to fulfill the promises of Judaism. Let me give you another one from the law. The calling, blessing, and obedience of Abraham. Abraham, as we were reading in Genesis 12 earlier, when I said that Israel was an expectant religion, an expectant faith, it was Genesis 12, 1 through 3 that we read where Abraham was called Abram at the time, was in Ur of the Chaldees. Think of that as Iraq. And he gets called out of Iraq to the promised land with the promise that through him all of the nations would be blessed. If we look at Genesis 15, 6, Abraham obeyed God. He went, and as he went, which was a great showing of faith, God said, the word of the Lord comes to him, Abram, in a vision. He says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your reward's going to be great. And Abram says, God, what are you going to give me? I don't even have a kid. How am I going to be the father of a great nation? I don't have any children. The heir of my house is some fellow from Damascus. You don't give me a child. I've got just some guy who's one of my sheep herders, who's going to be my heir. The word of the Lord said, this man's not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look up to heaven and number the stars Give me a number. Count them. That's how many your offspring's going to be. Then Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. God counted Abraham's faith 
Abraham's belief, Abraham's trust as his righteousness. It's the reason Abraham was ascetic. He was a righteous man. He would have righteousness not because he was good enough, but because he trusted in God. He had faith or belief. All three of those words are tied in linguistically. Now, if we look, Paul explains it in Romans 4. In Romans 4.13, again, that same letter. As Paul's walking through this, Paul says the following. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. It wasn't through Jewish acts of righteousness. It wasn't through any mitzvah. It wasn't through following Torah. God doesn't give the law until Moses over 400 years later. Law's not even there. When God declares the righteousness, the righteousness is declared by faith, not by works of law, not by following the Jewish law. Jewish law was never intended to make anyone righteous before God because no one can follow it perfectly. So the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he'd become heir of the world didn't come through the law. It came through the righteousness of faith. It's the adherence of the law, if the adherence of the law are to be the heirs, then faith is null. That promise God made is just pointless. If you've got to follow the law of Moses to be an heir of God or an offspring of Abraham, to be righteous before God, then that promise was useless. That's why Paul says it depends on faith. This promise rests on grace. It's guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. This is why it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. We share the faith of Abraham. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. So the calling, the blessing, the obedience of Abraham, look at it in some more detail. Look at Abraham with his son Isaac. Abraham finally gets that offspring. I mean, he kind of got a half one through Hagar because he decided ultimately it was Sarah's fault. He wasn't having a kid and she was too old. God says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about halfway. I'm going to do the job exactly what I told you I'd do, but I'm doing it my way and in my timing. God says, you're going to have another child. Sarah's going to have the child. It's going to be Isaac. And it's through Isaac that all of the nations will be blessed. You can chart the prophecy through him now. And having said that, God then calls Abraham and says, I want you to go kill your son and sacrifice him. Now, a lot of people have trouble with this story. A lot of people say, what kind of God would put him through that? Um, a tough one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough story. I will tell you this, Genesis makes it real clear that God did this, quote, 
to test Abraham. That's at the start of the story in Genesis 22. Test, not in the sense of, I want to see if you'll do what I tell you. But that language is put in there for the rest of Israel to read and everybody else to know this is not normative. You don't go out and sacrifice your sons. The neighbors of Israel did to appease their gods. This was not something to appease a god who's bloodthirsty. So absent God giving you the direct command in an unmistakable way, don't even remotely let this go to your brain. It's something to be done. That's what that means here. So God said to him, Abram, Ham, he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there on a burnt, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I'll tell you. Now I want to tell you some hints as we go through this story. Because Jesus came to fulfill this story. Not to abolish the law, to fulfill it. Mount Moriah, Chronicles 3.1, 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us Mount Moriah is where Solomon built the temple. This is ultimately where the temple was at the time of Jesus that had the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the other inner court. The curtain where in the Holy of Holies only the high priest could go and only once a year to offer the atoning sacrifice for the people. That's the curtain that was ripped at the crucifixion of Jesus. It happens on Mount Moriah. That is the source for this Christian experience that happens to Jesus as Messiah. So Abraham rises early in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men and his son Isaac. He cuts the wood for the burnt offering. He rose and went to the place where God told him. On the third day, that'll be significant. Abraham lifts up his eyes. He sees the place from afar. Abraham says to his young men, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Isaac had to carry the wood. As you look at this, see if this Isaac is not a picture of Jesus. By the way, the writer of Hebrews in the Jewish tradition was that Abraham did this in faith, knowing that God would resurrect Isaac or believing that God would. His trust in God was that deep. And that also takes some of the different perspective off of this idea of what kind of God would do this, dot, dot, dot. So Isaac has to carry the wood just as Jesus carried his own wood to his sacrifice. And Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife. They went both of them together. Isaac said to his father, my father, Avi. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, you could sacrifice lambs, you could sacrifice bulls, you could sacrifice goats, you could sacrifice doves, you could sacrifice other birds. But Isaac specifically is calling out for a lamb to be sacrificed. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
So they both went together. When they came to the place of which God told them, Abraham built the altar, laid the wood on the altar. He bound Isaac, uh, his son. Of course, Jesus is bound on the cross. Laid him on the altar on top of the wood, as Jesus was on the cross. Reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel... Huh? There we go. I had it before. Y'all read better than I do. Thank you. But the angel of Adonai, of Hashem, the Lord, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. I know you fear God. You haven't withheld your son, your only son, from me. There's a Greek translation that the Jews did a couple hundred years before the birth of Jesus, of this. They did it in Alexandria, Egypt. We call it the Septuagint. In the Greek translation, the words used here, your only son, are echoed in the words that Jesus used. When Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This was not out of a fear of God that Jesus was given but it was out of God's love for the world. Abraham looked and saw behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is an expectant religion. They are expecting a Messiah. They are expecting God to provide the Messiah. They are expecting the Messiah to be a sacrificed Messiah. They are expecting him to be a Messiah who's going to carry the wood to his own crucifixion, to his own death or offering. So if we look back to the PowerPoint, please, you see, oh, well, I didn't read you the Romans part. On the screen, we'll, oh, our booth is so good. Let's go back to the Elmo for just a moment, then we'll go back to the screen. Good booth. Um, Romans 3.23. This is what Paul's saying. Well, you can tell we've used this text before in here, can't you? Paul says in Romans 4.23, everyone is sinned. Who sinned in here? Everyone has sinned. And fallen short of God's glory. Who has lived up to the full measure of God's glory? Nobody. But everyone is justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the redeeming, the purchasing of us in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Big words, big theological words. Sacrifice. As a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Now look at this sentence, this next one. This shows God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. God passed over Abraham's sins. God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. How can a righteous God do that? 
How can a God who's truly righteous and just do that? How can a truly righteous God just wash away sins as if it's no big deal? He cannot as a righteous judge and a righteous God. A penalty has to be paid for the sin. Sin is not a small thing. It's a major disease. Sin doesn't make you sick. It kills you. If a righteous judge is going to have mercy on you, someone needs to pay the penalty. If a righteous judge is going to absolve you of your debt and do it righteously, someone else has to pay the debt or the righteous judge himself has to assume the debt. And that's what God did in Jesus. He paid the debt he didn't owe. Jesus wasn't dying for his own sins. Jesus was God's provision. He was God taking on our debt. And in him we have that justification. So Abraham and Isaac, where else? All of the Jewish festivals find fulfillment in Jesus. Pesach is, is, is around the corner, Passover. The whole Passover story is one of a lamb being slaughtered because the angel of death is coming to Egypt. And the angel of death will be taking every firstborn but will not visit the houses where the blood of the sacrificed lamb is painted on the door. Not just the, the beam on the top, but on the sides as well. And those who are in the homes with the sacrificed lamb will not receive the angel of death, but will be redeemed from the slavery of Egypt and brought into a promised land. And that story is one where Jesus is also the Passover lamb. And if you go to John 3, 12 through 19 and read about it in the New Testament, you'll see within the framework of that, Jesus talking, that whole encounter with Nicodemus, where Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, is within the framework of going to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb, Rabbi Paul says. Jesus is the one whose blood will cover us. And as a result, God will bring us out of the slavery, not of Pharaoh and Egypt, but of Satan and sin. Into a promised land of redemption. But we need to be covered by the blood. Not just Passover. Sukkot, one of my favorite ones. Sukkot is a Jewish Hebrew word that means kind of, um, it's translated tent or tabernacle. It's also called the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Really, it's a lean-to. And during this feast, which originally was seven days, I think now it's celebrated as eight. But, But at the time of Jesus, there were two very important rituals that happened that I want to underscore. One is the priest, the high priest, would take a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out in the temple, and the water would flow out. And it was based on a passage in Zechariah, Zechariah 14.6. Zechariah 14.6. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Zechariah is never an easy one because it's buried in the middle of the other minor prophets. 
So you flip right by it real easy. Zephaniah, Zechariah 14, 6. Zechariah 14, 6 has always been viewed as a messianic promise. In other words, this is one of the prophets that at the time of Jesus was still understood to be one talking about the Messiah. And the priest would pour out the water to indicate that when the Messiah came, there would be water for all. And water would not be a scarce commodity. Similarly, light would not be a scarce commodity. During Sukkot, they would light brilliantly all these torches and candles for the temple all night long. Until the morning came and the priest blew the trumpets and the lights went out to show that when the Messiah comes, he will lighten the world. So within that framework, here's the Zechariah prophecy. On that day when the Messiah comes, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. You'll have long days. It'll be continuing summer as in winter. So this messianic promise was one that was celebrated by the Israelites, the Jews, at the time of Jesus. It's within this framework at this festival that Jesus comes in John 7. We read about it. And Jesus says the following. This is Jesus at the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And Jesus says, somewhere. (laughs) He says, I'm the light of the world. That's part of it. But he also says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was saying this about the Spirit. Jesus was explaining the messianic prophecy as one where Jesus, the light of the world, enlightens people. It's not a physical light. It's a spiritual light. It's a mental light. It's the light that goes off as we understand who Jesus is. And the water that satisfies our thirst is not something so temporary, as Jesus said to the woman at the well. If you want real water, you come to me, and it's a water that will never end. You get the Spirit of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. If you read Leviticus 16, it talks about what all was involved. That you had two sacrificial animals. You had a goat and the sin would lay his hands on the the, the goat to represent the sins of the people and be driven out of the camp. As Jesus took the sins of the people. The entire premise of Yom Kippur's Day of Atonement with the sacrifice was that God would put his sins, the sins of the people, on an innocent who would be driven out and sacrificed on behalf of the people. That's the whole feast. That's the whole atonement, I should say. That's the sacrifice the people needed. That's Judaism's expectant religion. That is the religion as set forward in Torah. It is a religion that says God is going to take the sins of the people and put them on an innocent and drive them away from the people. Sacrifice the innocent for the good, the atonement of the people. 
there's so many intricacies and so many layers of this that I could spend three class periods just on this alone. But I'll tell you this. The idea that we have an atonement by simply confessing our sins to God and to others and that God will inscribe our name in the book of life for the next year in case something should happen is premised upon man's concepts. It's not premised upon the Day of Atonement as set forth in Torah. Because the Torah story, instructions, not story, the Torah instructions are specifically for the sacrifices to take place. Now, a lot of practicing Jews today will say, well, we can't sacrifice because the temple's been destroyed. No, that was written before the temple was ever built. No sacrifice today, my perspective, because Jesus finally came and fulfilled that prophecy 1,300 years later. And so we've got the sacrifice that took the sins of the people, that paid the price, the innocent. It is the solution. It is the completion. It is the finality behind Judaism. Completed Judaism leads you inexorably to the cross. Points for home. If some of the branches were broken off, Paul and the olive tree, and you, although a wild olive shoot, talking to us Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root. It's the root that supports you. We cannot lose track of the Old Testament, the Torah, God's Word, because it is the sustenance and the source from which we draw the significance of Jesus Messiah. We still call him Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah of Israel who becomes the Savior of the world. I want a true perspective. Point for home too. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. That's a promise God made associated with Yom Kippur. But the fruit of that, the reason why, that's what Paul said. Jesus had to die because God in his patience was overlooking the sins of all of these people. It didn't matter if you or I ever come to the Lord. God could have ended the world with the resurrection of Jesus and it'd be over. Jesus still had to die. Jesus didn't die for America. Jesus didn't die for Christians. Jesus died for the world. Not just the world after Jesus, but the world before Jesus. Because there were people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, David, Moses, Aaron, the Israelites. Tons of people who were putting their trust in God to forgive their sins. God had to do it. Had to do it. And that's what Jesus was. I need to be clean too. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. My faith is in Jesus, the Messiah, because that was the righteousness of Abraham and my righteousness today. I went five minutes over. I'm so sorry. I love you guys for being so kind and attentive. Let me bless you.
Let me bless you. I, I try to be so good with time, and I'm sorry. Lord, I apologize to the extent I was extraneous anywhere, but I ask you to reach out and to bless and to touch our hearts and our minds. Stir in us a conviction, Father, to worship and adore you and fall at your feet for the incredible way through thousands of years and thousands and millions of people and an intricate tapestry of history to bring to this world the salvation in Jesus, our Messiah our Lord and our God. It is in Him we pray, amen.